Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and this episode I'm speaking with Ben Krasenstein, the founder and CEO of Clara Capital. We talk specifically to Ben about the Clara Private Equity Fund that they've recently established that invests in small to medium-sized companies which generate significant climate-positive outcomes together with outsized commercial returns. Ben talks about how investors don't have to sacrifice returns to invest in projects that produce positive climate outcomes. Quite the contrary, he believes that investors will actually get greater returns by investing in the space. Ben also talks about how being part of the Smorgan family has shaped his views and has taught him about investing into private companies. Hope you enjoy the podcast. I certainly did. Please remember that this is not designed to be specific advice, nor is it. You are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Also, please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening. Ben Krasenstein, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Ben, perhaps you could kick off for the benefit of our listeners and give us a little bit of your personal background, please. Uh, thanks, David. Um, yeah, look, I um, my my background um, spans uh, both uh, professional services, uh, I guess a bit of uh, bohemian entrepreneurialism, which I can come back to, uh, and uh, um, obviously investing uh, over the later stage or last stage of my career, so to speak. Um, the uh, the professional services started back in fairly late blooming lawyer actually I started back in the early 2000s and that was after having gone through university and, and and the motions of getting a law degree which was great but then found other things to go and pursue uh, so enter the bohemian factor that i mentioned earlier where i spent a lot of time just you know driving up and down the east coast of australia and having child number one and exploring the world exploring myself and exploring um uh, other parts of our society here and then sort of transition back through various pursuits and and, and self-funded enterprises and activities up uh, up in New South Wales doing different things and that was a great experience ended up back in a very small country town law firm which uh, which was a fantastic um, uh, kind of re-entry into the professional world of providing legal services and learned a lot by doing that and, and met a lot of different people and um, got the nose broken a few times and had some interesting court experiences with with clients and and other and other people up and down that that part of the world so you know that probably um, hardened me up a bit got a bit more street smart about the way the world works in those early years of lawyering and then um, took that extended that into uh, into a general counsel type role that I really enjoyed. So I went from sort of private practice up there back to Melbourne, got into some boutique um, boutique entrepreneurial law firms. What I mean by that is that we were uh, trying to reinvent the fee model and, and providing different forms of legal services to people. Again, um, that was an entrepreneurial approach to, to delivering professional services. So that was exciting and, and learned a lot with the founder of that business. Um, from, yeah, so then from there progressed into a general counsel role, which I really enjoyed. And uh, that took me to a number of different businesses 
uh, and including funds management businesses. So for me, the transition to from sort of professional services and entrepreneurialism into investing that was a was a perhaps not a, a path necessarily well trodden, but one that uh, really stood me in good stead because, as I said, school of hard knocks a little bit, but also learning and meeting different people and getting insights into the way the world works and the way people work has been beneficial for me uh, now that we're on the investing side. Um, and I guess that that background is beneficial, David, because it's about relating to people for, for, for a lot of the things we do and relationships are really important. And that, that applies to both founders of businesses and people that you then work with when you're invested in businesses as well as investors. And so sort of all of that background stuff sort of was, was I think, pretty good for me to see, um, to see the way the world works in that regard. Um, and outside of the professional side of things, David, I'm a bit of a family man. Um, I love my kids, love the wife, um, second marriage in, and that's all good. Uh, and uh, the kids are a bit older now. Last one's in year 11, 12, year 11 this year. So not long until we've got a different, uh, well, we're not hoping not to be empty nesters too soon, but, you know, still late 40s, still got plenty to give. And um, as the kids grow up, we're sort of excited about what the future holds on a um, non-professional front. We'll have more time to travel. We love doing that. Um, I'm a big skier snowboarder, so we love to trek around and get to the mountains and, Get the hands dirty and, and and be outdoors, and that's really important to us. We'll be so, careful what you wish for there. I think those children are, are, are lasting in the household late, longer and longer, from what I hear and see. My my two are, are my three. Well, my my two elders are a similar sort of age. So Ben, perhaps you could tell listeners a little bit about Kalara Capital, uh, what it is, and what you're looking to achieve with that organisation. Yep. Sure. So Kalara Capital is an investment management business. Uh, and uh, obviously, we've got a very safe pair of hands when it comes to the, the funds management piece, because we know how to do that as investors ourselves, as private family office investors. And so we've got a very safe pair of hands on the funds management side. And, and, and then we manage the investments we make pretty actively. Uh, and we're focused um, on a couple of key asset classes, if you like, private equity being one and, and infrastructure being another. And they're divided up into, well, the infrastructure side is divided up into probably two or forks and goes down into two arms, one being infrastructure services for the cooling economy. Talk a little bit about that later on, if you like. And the other is more around utility scale infrastructure for the continuing clean energy transition that we're seeing. So that's going out and building and developing large scale wind farms, for example. That's on one side of the business. Mike, and then that's led by uh, a fellow by the name of Andrew Thompson, who's a, a gun CEO, uh, who's had a huge amount of experience in that sector. Um, the my, most of, A lot of my time um, is spent managing that part of the business with Andrew, but also getting my hands dirty as part of the deal team day to day on the private equity side. Uh, that's where we are investing into operating companies. And we've done that in uh, two formats, if you like. One up until uh, mid last year was direct private equity syndicates into operating businesses um, as we saw the opportunities arise. And so they were single unitized structures, unit trusts that invested in, in each business. 
and we'd um, we'd done two of them on at an sorry uh, as a, using an equity instrument and one of those using a debt instrument before we then decided mid last year to launch our fund one which is now what we're working on um, day in day out and that's a very exciting fund that's focused on businesses across a couple of well a number of different sectors I'll, I'll come to that so yeah we're very focused on now this PE fund one delivering outcomes for our investors that are inherently impactful and climate focused and at the same time are inherently commercial and focused on financial return so for us we won't do a deal unless it has both of those boxes ticked that is financial returns which would appeal to any private equity investor and then very deep impactful climate outcomes which are obviously important on a number of levels today for businesses and ben before we talk about the private equity fund and your outlook and how you're doing things there one, one of the things that occurs to me when investors give their money to a private equity investor uh, for a long amount of time where it is tied up they're, they're ostensibly showing huge amount of faith in the management team and the team that's there. And you, you alluded to there about a safe pair of hands via the family office background. For those who aren't aware of that, of our listeners, can you maybe elaborate on that and talk to the experience and learnings that's created to provide those safe pair of hands? Sure. Look, we are pretty private about our background and history and, and pretty private about the way we do things, but at the same time, uh, proud and, and, and realistic that people should know about that when they're investing with us. So it's a good question and, and, and happy to answer it. So my background is I go way back in in, in sort of family um, office world and it's mainly operating company world by virtue of the Smorgan family um, um, that I'm connected to. Obviously, my grandfather's died only a couple of years ago at 96 and he was an old stalwart patriarch. My grandmother's still alive. And so... That's on my maternal side and, and and that obviously is a big part of the world that I was brought up in and, and therefore understood the way, uh, mainly the way businesses were run and we were in there from the early days as, you know, little tackers at 12 and 13, painting stuff and counting nuts and bolts and sorting through the waste paper and all that stuff. So that was a really uh, solid uh, background, particularly when it comes to work ethic, but also just being around the table talking about various um, various business and operating company related and commercial related matters, I guess. So that's kind of in the blood. But then also um, over time, I've, I've extended that into my own sort of investing program. And I guess that's part of the safe pair of hands. I understand how private offices and family offices and, and, and high net worth individuals I don't want to say move and shake, but it's more about understanding the, the way that you, you need to manage information, um, manage um, wealth, and and then um, um, relate to people who come from that same type of background who want to invest with you. So that that's that's part of it. The other part is that our own family office now that I've established with my wife has its own kind of ethos and. Uh, structure and, and vision and, and and that also by virtue of her background brings with it um, a deep family office investing history she's 
her name's Cassie Liberman, so that name's pretty synonymous in 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 Melbourne and Australia with with investing, and again, a long history of um, relationship driven business, and you know, by virtue of the two of us forming up our own version of the way we want to invest off our own balance sheet. Uh, we think we're in where that stands us in good stead of Kalara, which is an independent, separately owned and managed business. Uh, it gives us a lot of, um, and hopefully our investors, a lot of comfort and confidence that if you invest with us, we invest our own balance sheet into the same deals you're investing into. So as a family office, uh, you should feel comfortable with us. Now, that might take people along the pathway to make an investment decision with us, and that's great. Um, we're, we're, we're not just family office focused. We want to we want to broaden our investor base, and we're currently doing that with other individuals, corporate investors. Um, uh, we want to get to know wealth managers like yourselves a lot better, and um, those relationships then become more institutionalised, and we can talk to the super fund. So we're... we're we're headed in that direction, David. Where um, it's you know it's important to make it clear we are not just investing our own balance sheet. It's not what Kalara is. Kalara is an independent investment management company that has that is fortunate to have the backing uh, of our family office from a working capital point of view, and it's helped build it. It's, it's essentially on its own two feet now, so that's good. And it's fortunate that it has an investor that's interested and ready to invest in the deals. Uh, however, it, it's it's now um, uh, grown up a bit and needs, and, needs and is, um, you know, getting out there and, and having to raise the money to get the management fees and do all the things that, that other PE managers do. And Ben, tell us about the fund that you're building at the moment, um, what it's seeking to do, how it's seeking to do it, what type of transactions it will do, what what uh, should investors or potential investors expect from that entity? So yeah, uh, that's a, um, a a PE fund. Uh, there's two things we're doing. One is is the structure which a lot of investors be, would be familiar with, which is a GPLP structure. So it's called a venture capital limited partnership. Uh, I don't pay too much attention to the venture capital part. What, however, you define our investing. For us, it's about growth investing into companies within that fund. So that fund is seeking to get to a $30 million second close pretty soon uh, and then up to a $50 million uh, uh, final close to deploy into operating companies uh, that are EBITDA positive, hopefully, or if not, say within 12 months maximum of being EBITDA positive. If you're 12 months away, you're probably a bit early for us, but that gives you the, the range. We really want to be investing in companies that are ready to scale, not just ready to test out whether they can create a business. We want to be de-risked a little bit more than what you might typically see with venture capital funds. We don't want to take too much technology risk. We don't want to take product market fit risk. Uh, we want to see founders with experience. We want to see track record and um, accurate forecasting histories. Uh, we want to see 
uh, you know, businesses that are ready to transition from founder-led really to uh, board-led and to represent a wider group of shareholders than just founder interests. And so we're pretty good at that and we want to we stay at that stage of investing in companies, uh, mainly in Australia. We're calling it sort of small cap to mid cap investing, Dave, where we're saying, look, EVs for these companies are typically probably between, you know, 20, 30 million to 100 million is probably our sweet spot. We can invest at larger valuations. That's not a problem. We then need to take care as to how much control we have and, and all of those things because we want minority protection rights if we're going to be investing as a, as a minority shareholder and uh, generally we seek board rights or at least observer rights and um, that's important for us. It's important for us because we want to obviously protect our investment but also because we want to get in there and help these businesses. So we want to be quite active. So that's a little bit about the stage. Our check sizes there are, you know, don't need to go into too much detail unless you want to hear it, but it's, you know, three, you know, probably three to $10 million checks that we want to write out of this fund and therefore have a pretty, a pretty concentrated, uh, you know, eight to 10 companies that's manageable for us uh, uh, across um, a number of sectors, which I'm happy to get into if you like. Ben, I think it'd be helpful if you talked about the economics of the type of companies you're looking for, yep. because I think there's a, a misunderstanding. And I think, you know, I had to pick on my father here, but, you know, we, I saw him a, a week or two ago and he says, no, you know, I was playing golf the other day and this guy tells me it takes you eight years to get your money back on a wind farm, you know. So I, I think there's a, a perception out there that, you know, a, a lot of this move to net zero and, you know, that I think there is a, a confusion or a misunderstanding that there is a lot of hype and there's a lot of kind of smokes and mirror and there's not a lot of real substance or economic opportunity that it's purely a philanthropic venture to be putting money into green technology or green businesses. Can you maybe talk to that and maybe a couple of examples of the type of companies you've either invested in or are looking at? Sure. Yeah, look, it's a great question and a good point. There is a uh, uh, still a, a market position that people take that if you're investing for climate outcomes or decarbonisation or for the environment, which is, you know, words that get bandied around, that you are then inherently getting lower returns because you're giving it away to save the planet. It's simply not what the reality is based on the fact that the world led by major corporates and governments is now having to decarbonise to transition to a net zero economy by dates that have been set and enshrined. So how do you do that and what does it look like? The simplest way to think about it is you, you, you instead of having an energy system that's intensively, um, well, that's, that's carbon intensive, we now need an energy system that's not carbon intensive and it just happens to be the case that after a lot of years of investing and technology improvements that doing that via renewable sources, i.e. wind and solar, to go refer back to your wind example, is cheaper per kilowatt hour than it is to use traditional fossil fuels. And so it's not even a question anymore about if you want to be green, you do it this way. If you want to be economical and get commercial outcomes, you do it this way. That's the bit, one of the clearest examples, the clean energy 
um, transition is is so far now, well, it's almost not a transition, but it still is a transition in Australia. My point is you would invest in the energy sector in clean energy because you want better returns full stop. That same example is applicable across multiple sectors. Transport's coming in that direction. Food systems need to change to decarbonise. The costs associated with being carbon intensive are just large across multiple sectors and it doesn't make sense anymore in, in many examples. Packaging's another one. Uh, to invest with legacy carbon intensive uh, assets and supply chains. So that's probably the most direct answer. We're looking for opportunities where, where, where we know there is a transition occurring across multiple sectors of, a, of an economy. And therefore, you've got to think to yourself, well, shit, there's going to be huge, pardon the French, might edit that one out. Uh, there's going to be multiple opportunities to create economic upside. Now, that comes from consumer trends, or not even trends, shifts, because people are demanding low-carbon products. It comes from corporates and stakeholders and investors who are saying, we think it's important to look after the natural capital base that we have in order to progress our society and create wealth across the world over the next generation and beyond. How do we do that? You better not pollute too much more. So that's a pressure point. And governments are stepping in and, and, and legislating around. So there's still going to be costs that are imposed by a regulatory system on carbon-intensive industries. That's until the market takes shape fully, that's going to occur, which adds costs to businesses who are carbon-intensive or which are carbon-intensive. And again, puts pressure on those businesses to do something about it. So we think we're pretty good at identifying which businesses need help and therefore will improve from a economic and impact point of view because we think it's a flywheel and they're all connected. And or we look for those businesses, Dave, that are on that journey already that are going to be able to scale these types of outcomes. Uh, so um, we want to maintain that specialisation as a manager, which we have. And, uh, uh, you know, an example uh, of where we're at or where we're one of the companies that we've invested in is at. Um, I'm just... So a good one is a packaging company we've invested in, in the fund, by the fund, which has... Um, essentially created a platform, but also a bespoke solution, which enables SMEs to outsource their procurement of packaging. It's a big function that a lot of businesses don't internalise because it's expensive and it's complicated. And so these guys have found a gap there. They've also found a gap in the provision and the corralling, if you like, of a whole lot of different suppliers globally. Um, but for the provision of sustainable packaging solutions. And it's quite complex. Where does it come from? What type of packaging is it? Is it biodegradable? Is it compostable? Is it home compostable? Is it recycled? Et cetera, et cetera. 
there's many different variations on that theme and there's many different parts of the world and different materials that are used by different manufacturers and, and, and it's a complex web of solutions that needs to be provided. Anyway, these guys have developed and found that niche and developed their own supply chain system and, and, and a procurement platform which enables these SMEs to order online and upload and upload their packaging design and get the image and logos all uh, up on a 3D image and then delivered to them um, in a one-stop or sort of in a, in a not a one-click fashion, but similar. And their demand, the demand that they're seeing from their customers is enormous. They're an Australian-based business. They're getting interest from US companies because of the spot that put themselves in, in the supply chain, which has been really smart, and because of their technology and their flexibility and the ability to design a bespoke solution. And they're, they're growing enormously. They're something like 30% ahead of their revenue projections. Uh, so we invested in June last year. It's now you know Q3, almost the end of Q3 on that journey. And we're looking at them quite closely thinking, wow, okay, you guys are way ahead of where we thought you'd be. That's good for fund investors. It's a good example of... We use it as our smarts. We're promoting ourselves, but it's a, but it's a good example of a company that's on an upward trajectory because their customers are driving the change, and ultimately the consumers that sit behind it, they go and buy the coffee that's in a sustainable compostable bag, are saying we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to pile up plastic in our homes. The kids, you know, we mentioned the kids before, like they're not interested in that. They're all saying, well, you know, where's the recycling bin? So it's a, it's, a, it's a really generational shift that's occurring in a lot of these subsectors and we're seeing it and, every day and it's not about necessarily being green. I mean, if you're not interested in being green, so to speak, you're still going to be interested in a high-revenue growth packaging business. Sure. But aside of that, I think the demand profile of that, everyone will concur judging on the uh, Amazon and other home delivery boxes next to their bins and having to deal with the uh, Sunday night garbage cleanup shuffle of trying to get and, and get rid of that. I, I've taken to leaving it out in the rain or trying to put it under yeah. the sprinkler <laughs> to fold it up. So I think everyone sees the need there. And, and, and also most people, the frustration of this sort of, you know, Apple almost culture of un making packaging more and more complicated as part of the sales tool. I, I think mm. there's a huge mm. need for that. And it's a, it's a great example of the profitability and the demand drivers of something that so happens to be part of a good environmental solution. I'm, I'm really interested for that type of transaction. Is there a lot of competition? Everyone, I, I think we have seen an enormous amount of money raised into private equity, venture capital, um, particularly in the US um, and, and around the world. Also in Australia, we've seen some huge amounts raised by some venture capital funds um, over the last two years. I'm really interested to understand if there's a lot of demand. When you're, when you're at the table and talking to these companies, are you competing against many others looking to write a check to them or, or are the rest focused on you know, the next app or the next social media thing and 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 the more technology 
focused uh, type of things. So uh, is it crowded the space that you're looking to invest into? So I think we've got a little bit of white space around us because of the target sectors, target stage that we're in, albeit it's getting hotter. We think we'll get this fund away and maintain some of that white space, but it is going to close in. We know that. Now, the example there, the evidence of that, if you like, Dave, is we're probably going to close our fourth deal soon in eight or nine months. Now, there's some risk associated with that. We understand all of those things too. So we're going to, we're going to need to uh, take stock and, and, and go through where we head next. But the reason I mention it is that there's been deals there for us to do. Uh, and we've done them without a huge amount of pressure from others. And there's more to come. So I guess that's a way of saying we think we can deploy the money that we're going to raise and there's enough white space. And I, and I think I can tell you why I think there's white space. Having said that, it's starting to happen that there's more money around for these smaller cap companies in these sectors um, and it's going to continue to, to change because I think from what I can tell and what I and, and the information flows that I see, the growth equity stage is becoming more uh, interesting to PE investors uh, over now that the the sort of VC not now you know, there's not it's not at an end but there's been so much money for earlier stage companies and a lot of money for buyouts, these big barbell effects happens in PE. And we've found, I think, a spot where there's been a limited amount of money flowing. And that's, you know, that's the Aussie business that wants to raise three or five million dollars. And they've been around for a while. They've actually, say, never raised money before. So it's hard for those operators and businesses. Let's say you've got 20 FTEs and, and founders in there. It's, a, it's not an easy and no one's had investment experience, but they're very good operators. How do you go and find five million bucks from a PE shop? Ticket's pretty small. Uh, unless you're tapped into an investor community, where do you go and get that money? For us, we're set up in a way that we can deliver that type of check the same way we can deliver a $10 million check or with a co-investor, a $20 million check. Uh, for us, we can write those smaller checks. So that's part of the reason why I think there's some white space around us. Uh, and we've deliberately done it the, that way for this for this fund one. We're not in a rush to get fund. We know we need to get funds under management to be a sustainable and successful business, but we're not in a huge rush to jump to that point. We want to get it right first up. Uh, does that answer your question? It does. Um, I, I think you could, it would be helpful if you talk to listeners and prospective investors in the fund about the likely experience or voyage you you would encourage them to think about in terms of, you know, is this fully paid up, capital called, uh, what sort of term is it, what sort of liquidity does it offer, um, what sort of expected rate of returns do they, do you think are commensurate with the type of investments that you're going to be making? Sure. So it's a capital call scenario. You hang on to your money until we need it. You commit and then you 
uh, you'll write the check or send the EFT when we call it over a deployment period of, I think the technical fixed, um, deployment period is four years at maximum, but um, if it won't take that long. Uh, we've already invested, as I said, close to 20 million for companies. Fund will be somewhere between 30 and 50 million in size. So that gives you an indication. We'll deploy reasonably smartly, I think, in this fund. Liquidity, it's not, there's no tradable unit. So it's not a, a liquid redeeming type fund. It doesn't have those cash flows or assets in it that you can do that. However, because of the stage of investing that we're looking at here, Dave, we think that you'll see some exits progressively over the fund life, starting anywhere from, you know, potentially two years from now. So a lot of the businesses that we enter into have already got either one eye on an exit or developing their strategy because they're at that stage of, of growth. So where you typically might come in on an eight or 10 year time frame as a VC investor or you know, anyone who says I'm a private equity investor, but it's all early stage, you're going on eight and 10 year journeys. It, we don't think it'll be that long for us. Now our fund term needs to be that long because we might not deploy the last dollar until year two or three from now and, you'd, and you need four or five years potentially up your sleeve. So our fund term is that typical 10 year term. However, my projection is you'll start seeing exits from year sort of two and a half and on. And when we have an exit, which is hopefully returning capital and then some, that's what happens. So we don't hang on to it, we don't reinvest, you get your money out. Now the dream is the first two exits we do or first one exit we do, uh, returns all the capital to investors and then it's all hunky-dory from there. Uh, but, you know, maybe it takes two or three, you get all your money back and you start getting your upside, but that's progressively coming out. So in that sense, it's we hope to, to see some, some returns pretty quickly. It's not inconceivable that some of these businesses can distribute cash because they're going to be cash flow positive already like as at day one if not you know a little bit longer or later bit bit bit, bit careful on that one i don't want to i don't want people to think that this is a, a cash yielding fund it's not uh and, and and a lot of those things may not happen because you're reinvesting any free cash for growth over time if you if you if you're scaling well so it's just a, it's a side comment uh for people to understand that there is real money flowing through these businesses as we invest into them. So that'll be the first bit. Uh, the return expectations um, are pretty typical uh, base case scenarios that we've put in our IM for people to look at. Growth investing, think about three times money. Think about, you know, 20 to 25% IRRs as an anchor point, maybe two and a half times money, I think is what we put in our IM. Uh, one of the interesting things we're going through now, David, is looking at the performance of the three companies that are now in there uh, and, and, and putting 
those things in, into a sort of a synopsis document to show existing investors and potential new investors. And I think you'll see that if it tracked the way those companies have tracked over the last six to nine months, we'll probably be ahead of those numbers, but it's very early days, obviously, and things happen. But, you know, we're going to be able to put some concrete, almost track record of fund one because we've had six or nine months of it and we're still raising money in front of people to say, hey, look, uh, this is what we're saying. This is what's happened over the last two or three quarters. Uh, it's worth worth dipping your toe in or, or backing us. Uh, so there's a bit about liquidity. Um, you know, follow-on investing is something we think about as well. How much of that money are we going to as a manager keep aside for follow-ons? We think about all that stuff. We don't have to in terms of our fund deed. Uh, sometimes you're going to need to to maintain your rights, as you'd be aware, and a lot of investors would be aware. You, you, need, you don't want to dilute too much because you don't want to give away rights, but uh, I'm not necessarily scared of dilution if you're maintaining your position as uh, on the board and you're maintaining your minority protections that you bargain for. So there's all of those conversations we have all the time about how we, how we do all of that. Um, but there's some exciting businesses in there for people to, to, to get stuck into and sink their teeth into if they're interested, that's for sure. Terrific. Thanks, Ben. I think that's been a, a really good introduction to the organisation, the capability, and also the aims of, of the type of investments you're looking to action. I'll leave you with the last word before we sort of sum up. If there's anything else you want to uh, add before I thank you. Oh, no, look, just to really appreciate your support. Don't really appreciate the, um, the the interest. And if we can continue to normalise this conversation around investing for profits and outcomes or profits and impact at the same time, uh, then uh, that's 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 an important part of our mission. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we, can, we can keep talking about it. Excellent. Thank you for your time. Happy to have you join us at Inside the Rope. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.